Natalie Wood and a lot of Hollywood stars were, in a sense, uh, birds in a gilded cage. They really were. People, you know, envy them, but what they knew about them was all fantasy. You just felt that these stars led absolute fairy tale lives, and and they didn't. Robert R. J. Wagner and Natalie Wood, a Hollywood dream come true, or was it a nightmare? Couldn't stop myself. Chad, don't punish me. Natalie Wood and Robert Wagner in their first picture together. These are not kids. They're young adults, yet ready to destroy each other in their search for love. If I can't have you, then I want to hurt you. And I will. That was a clip from the movie All the Fine Young Cannibals, the only film Natalie Wood and Robert Wagner would do together as husband and wife. And for those of you already convinced Wagner may have had a role in Natalie's death, an ominous foreshadowing of what was to come. Hello, and welcome to Chapter 3 of Fatal Voyage, The Mysterious Death of Natalie Wood. I'm your host, Dylan Howard. For Hollywood insiders and the public alike, Natalie Wood and Robert Wagner's love affair seemed picture-perfect. Natalie, having just starred in Rebel Without a Cause, which earned her an Academy Award nomination, was now a bona fide superstar. Her every move, including who she dated, was now under the media microscope. But as we learned in Chapter 2, although Natalie had briefly dated some high-profile men, such as James Dean, she ultimately only had eyes for one man, a man who captured her imagination as a young girl and kept her interest into young adulthood. That man was RJ. Hollywood historian Scott Hoover shared a well-known story with us. There's that sort of famous anecdote of Natalie seeing him in the hallways at the Fox lot and when she was 10 years old and telling her mother, I'm going to marry that man. Um, what, is that a studio-created line, or did it really happen? Well, Natalie stuck to it long after she didn't have to, so there might be something to it. As the story goes, Natalie's mother, Maria, eventually took matters into her own hands, called RJ's publicist, and insisted that a date be set up between her daughter and Robert Wagner. It might be said that of all the acts Natalie's infamously pushy, borderline abusive mum committed, this was the most significant of all. Lana Wood, Natalie's sister, explains. Natalie had always had a crush on RJ, and it is quite possible that my mother called for that. And then it was not that long afterward that um, my mom and dad seemed like all nervous and things and my mom told me that somebody special was coming over that Natalie thought was very special and that I wasn't to bother them. And I remember RJ walking through with Natalie and uh, them going out and when I first saw RJ, I thought he was a big tall guy who had um, nice color eyes. That was about it. I was, I was more concerned with the fact that I was going to be spending the evening with Natalie. <laughs> that, that was more my concern. So you were kind of jealous of her time at that time? I wanted to be with her, yeah, yeah. And that was my worry when she got married. 
is that I wouldn't be with her. It was always, you know, me and Natalie. It's easy to see how nine-year-old Lana could feel threatened by Robert. But there was little she could do to stop the union between Natalie and Wagner. They simply seemed destined to be together. On the day Natalie turned 18, she went on her first date with RJ. And as news quickly spread around town about this budding romance, whispers and rumours did as well. Was this true love? Or was RJ dating Natalie to boost his own career? I don't think either of them were unwilling to go on this date. But I think for Robert Wagner, as much of a win-win scenario as their relationship seemed to be, I think it was also a double-edged sword because her career was only flourishing as their relationship went on and his didn't. And at that time, uh, in the late 50s and early 60s, to, to be the male in the relationship and to not be in the driver's seat as far as fame, sure, she helped his career in keeping him in, you know, in all the magazines and they were beautiful in photographs together. So on that level, she helped him stay viable. Maybe he wouldn't have gotten even the roles he, had, he was getting if she wasn't around. Regardless of RJ's motivations for dating Natalie, her motivations were simple. Even though I grew up in a town where people change marital partners like hairstyles, I was raised in an old-fashioned family with traditional values. I wanted, and still do, the things the girl next door takes for granted. A house with a husband and children. On December 6, 1957, the anniversary of our first serious date, he took me to a restaurant for a champagne supper. I spotted something glittering at the bottom of my champagne glass, a diamond and pearl ring. The inscription said, marry me. With a simple yes, 18-year-old Natalie had the beginnings of what she'd always wanted, and finally, some stability in her life. Natalie wanted very much to be married and have kids. Having kids was everything to her, everything to her, to the point where she said, if you have a baby before me, um, I, I, I'll kill myself. And I said, don't worry. <laughs> it's not going to happen. I think she always wanted a home. We were such gypsies in our home life. We would move from house to house to school to school. It was constant. Natalie yearned for a stable, what she would call more normal, everyday kind of a life in one house and uh, one family that was close. I couldn't begin to guess at what RJ uh, was thinking as far as marrying Natalie, but I would like to think that they were madly in love when they first got married. Just before I got married, I made a movie called Kings Go Forth with Frank Sinatra, which was the start of another close friendship we asked him for advice on how to get married in church without turning it into a publicity circus. Make sure the press doesn't get wise, Sinatra told us. Don't give anybody the date. If you tell your close friends, take them with you. The night before the wedding, I got this note. Darling, I miss you. Are you going to be busy around 1 p.m.? Love you, RJ. I replied, I won't be busy. How about getting married? All my love. The first time that Natalie and RJ were getting married, in the morning of the wedding, there was a great 
flurry of excitement and Natalie's dress and where was my dress and was this okay and was that okay and jewelry and running around and Natalie looked beautiful and um, my mother was thrilled about the wedding, absolutely thrilled. Her daughter was marrying this great looking guy who was an actor. What could be better than that? If you look at any photograph from the late 50s into the early 60s with Robert Wagner and Natalie Wood, they were a dream. Together, they were just, I mean, as, as, as perfect a couple as, as the public could ask for to, to want to follow. Because thanks to a lot of the studio machinations, they had that picture-perfect relationship plastered all over every magazine and put out for the public to consume. Natalie and RJ tried to keep private but the world demanded to know details about the couple. Hollywood sold the world a dream of their perfect marriage without any real problems. But perfection is an illusion. Dreams always end. And as Natalie's career kept growing, cracks began to appear. Early on, we told the press that our home was off limits. No reporters or cameras inside. Looking at it from the outside, we must have seemed like the American dream. We were both attractive and successful, so what could possibly be wrong? Hi, so I am Ken Levine, and I am a longtime television writer. Uh, was the head writer of MASH, uh, produced Cheers, also on Frasier, uh, The Simpsons, uh, won Emmys, uh, I've been, you know, doing this for like 45 years, also directing television. So I'm, um, I'm pretty entrenched in, uh, in Hollywood. I didn't think Robert Wagner was necessarily a star. I would never think people would go to a movie because Robert Wagner was starring in it. You know, he didn't have that gravitas. Uh, he was good looking and he was suave, but he wasn't Cary Grant. He was just, you know, very pleasant, very serviceable actor. It has to be hard for an actor like Robert Wagner, who is very good and worked constantly to not be able to make that big jump, to not be Gregory Peck or uh, Burt Lancaster, that star that opens movies. And it also had to be, I'm sure, kind of bittersweet being with Natalie Wood because Natalie Wood clearly had the bigger career, was the bigger star. And because he was with Natalie Wood, it certainly elevated his presence in Hollywood. On the other hand, there's a little bit of star is born, you know, where it's got to be tough, uh, especially if you are also an actor to have your partner be more successful and um, and achieve the spoils that you would always hope that you yourself would get. During this hectic period, as I worked 14 months straight, 
RJ went through an ordeal that all performers, including myself, have to face. His career hit a momentary lull. It would have been better for our marriage if my work had hit a soft spot at that point. RJ believed strongly in keeping things to himself, but he would have to be made of iron not to feel a bit hurt in that situation. I wanted to discuss our problems with RJ, but where do you begin? And what can you say when everything, on the surface, looks so right? As my professional and personal pressures increased, everything seemed magnified and distorted. A careless remark suddenly became a major insult. The childhood problems had been swept under a rug for years while I was busy working. Now that I was married and on my own, so to speak, they came out of hiding. I was starting Splendor in the Grass. It was to be filmed in upstate New York. Both RJ and I hoped the change would do us good. The fractures had kind of been imminent in their relationship in the early 60s. And I think that one of the key things that led to the demise was the fact that Natalie was cast in this film, Splendor in the Grass. An amazing role for her, um, amazing opportunity, and she is amazing in it. Um, her co-star was somewhat unknown at that time. His name was Warren Beatty. And they didn't immediately have chemistry, but the director, Ilya Kazan, who was, you know, a genius of his, of his day, persisted in, in, you know, keeping this coupling together. And eventually, uh, something clicked and the kissing scenes became more, you know, passionate and more realistic. And the next thing he knew, he, they were showing up on set and Warren would have his arm around Natalie's waist. And it seemed like that something had, had changed. And certainly Robert Wagner, became aware of this to the point that he was driven to distraction by rumors that something was going on. In RJ's own memoirs, he states that he does not believe that Natalie had an affair with Warren while filming Splendor in the Grass. He also admits to doing things that only an insanely jealous man would do. He began, you know, bringing it up to Natalie and, and bring, bringing more friction to the relationship by addressing it. He began to keep tabs on Warren Beatty and trying to catch them in the act if there was an act to catch them in. And it became really problematic. And, it, and that combined with his insecurity about where he fit in, in the success ladder in Hollywood as, as opposed to his wife really, really was what doomed the relationship and, and drove them apart. It was really driving him to a very dark place. And at one point, he's, he's admitted in, in his memoirs that he followed you know, Warren Beatty home to his house and he had a gun on him. And that he was prepared to kill Warren. He didn't go through with it. He didn't even confront him. Um, but he was, you know, he was parked outside. And that, that shows you just how much he was falling apart because the relationship was falling apart. And what of Natalie? What was she feeling and thinking during this time? How was she coping with the disintegration of a dream she had since she was 10 years old? After two years of marriage, things began to change. Neither of us was ready to confront reality. We not only worked at illusion, we lived in it. We were like a couple of kids playing house in a gingerbread world. I had swept up my childhood problems under the rug labeled marriage, and now they were piling up. We were aware that we had problems, but tried to avoid the real conflicts. We maintained a superficially happy relationship, 
and hoped that by pretending there was nothing wrong, the problems would go away. I was confused about my deepest feelings. How do you separate reality from illusion when you have been steeped in make-believe all your life? I realize now that marriage requires patience and work, as well as the ability to accept another human being, flaws and all, without cloaking him in a smothering mantle of perfection. It was unfair of me to heap all my dreams on one man's shoulders. Why did Natalie downplay RJ's part in their demise? Was she, despite everything, still devoted to Wagner? After all, he was her husband, and despite his bad behaviours, RJ was also kind, dashing and charming. Perhaps Natalie would want to hold on to those things in order to keep her marriage intact. But there are others, like Natalie's sister Lana, who aren't so willing to give him a pass. It's really so intangible. I don't know what there is, but I, I know how I react to someone that I'm meeting who is warm and open or I see some sort of, you find some kind of a connection or, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's the same for you, um, where you feel comfortable and um, welcomed. And I, I never felt anything from him, nothing. I've always felt that um, he was very self-centered and egotistical. Obviously, Natalie found things in him that she found valuable and lovable, and um, I, she wouldn't be attracted to someone who was uh, a jerk or an idiot. I finally told RJ that I need professional help. I wanted analysis. My husband had a traditional view of analysis. He thought people ought to solve their own problems. I telephoned my analyst for an appointment. We made one for the following Monday, but it was too late. My marriage collapsed that weekend. It is too painful for me to recall in print the incidents that led to the final breakup. It was more than the final straw. It was reality crushing the fragile web of romantic fantasies with sledgehammer force. Walk us through the, the night. So she comes knocking at the door or she just walks in. What happens? She, she walked in, holding her hand, having some kind of cloth. I don't know if it was a napkin from a restaurant or what it was. and Bleeding and absolutely hysterically crying. A mess, a complete mess that I had not seen. I had never seen her that bad. I was asked to leave the room and that... You know, something bad happened and that uh, Natalie was leaving RJ. It wasn't until later because I didn't put all the, the clues and the hysterics together. It was actually extremely upsetting to me as a kid to see someone who I thought was... Um, you know, close to not being real. She was so perfect with everything. And to see her that distraught and to see things like that was very difficult for me. So I just kind of, you know, when they said, go to your room, I, I went and I was sort of tuning out completely. But it wasn't until later that um, she had said she 
caught him with someone and that this someone was another man. It wasn't just the fact that he cheated, it was the emotional betrayal. RJ had clearly kept major secrets from her, fundamental secrets about the very man he was, secrets that would undermine the foundation of their relationship. Was their whole life together a lie? And on top of everything else, what would America think? Their seemingly perfect Hollywood veneer was now exposed as a sham. Natalie, maybe for the first time in her life, was truly alone. She had no idea how she would recover from the ultimate betrayal. But one thing was certain, their fairy tale marriage was over. On the next fatal voyage... Suddenly she called me and said, put together an outfit, grab something, I'll meet me at the hospital. She was there under a, an assumed name and um, put away in a bed in a little room. And um, I was terrifying. It was terrifying. She was um, not in good shape. Fatal Voyage is executive produced and hosted by me, Dylan Howard, and American Media Incorporated. Executive producers also include Kelly Garner and Carolina Saavedra from Treefort Media. Editing, scoring, and original music by Tom Monaghan. The series is mixed and engineered by Stephen Cologne. Make sure to subscribe to Fatal Voyage wherever you get podcasts. Mm-hmm.